Welcome back to the Laravel Podcast Season 4. Today we're talking to Jordan Pittman about Laravel Mix, the front-end compilation, concatenation, mangulation, module pack nation tool. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to the Laravel Podcast Season 4. Today we're talking about Laravel Mix, which is a front-end focused tool. It's what we're using for bundling our JavaScript and everything like that. I've got Jordan Pittman with me, who has been doing a ton of work with upgrading Laravel Mix to Webpack 4, and now it's soon to be a Webpack 5. Uh, so before we get into anything else, Jordan, can you say hi to the people? And just, again, you know, my normal thing, if you meet somebody in the grocery store and they say, so what do you do? How do you answer that question? Um Hi, uh, I am. <laughs> my name is Jordan Pittman. I am a developer. But if I were to meet someone in the grocery store, I typically just say I work on computers. It, it's you know, yes, I can fix your printer sometimes, <laughs> but uh, I work yep. on websites. I, I work on apps for people and companies, and mm -hmm. it, it generally boils down to like the kind of person that I'm talking with. But generally, it's just I work with computers. Yeah. And if you were talking to a Laravel programmer and they were saying, well, what in particular do you do relative to your other average Laravel programmer? What's your answer? So I would say I build like custom platforms for our clients. Mm -hmm. So like I work for a company called Cargo in Greenville, South Carolina. And we do stuff for several large businesses. Like we help them market to small business. That's kind of our niche. And so we do stuff for uh, Mercedes and for Lenovo. We've done stuff for Microsoft, for Intel, for 3M. So several people. And I typically, I tend to work on more of the custom like platform solutions. Um, so like we have yeah. a handful of like, like marketing stuff, like we do marketing strategy, whatever. But when I can, I work on architecture uh, and I work on basically, hey, we need something custom to suit our needs. It's not just a, right. you know, not a brochure site, but something yeah. more advanced. And that's typically what I focus on. Yeah. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. And, and so because we're talking about something front endy today, and it's helpful to know that like, what's your background? Do you come from more of like a background? Like what got, where, where were you before you were in Laravel? So I've probably started more backend, honestly. Um, oh yeah. But, uh, cause I've been doing this for 15-ish years, I think, something like that. Yeah. And so I remember like, when I originally started, it was like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And right. then I, I got into like PHP, like back in the early days of PHP 4.1 and 4.2. And I remember using CodeIgniter. I used Cake PHP. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember building sites that didn't have a framework at all. Yeah. Uh, you know? And yep. so like that's kind of where I, I started. And then I just, I kind of got more into the, the world of like working with JavaScript and more interactive stuff. And I guess I just kind of like threw myself into that. I threw myself into like, trying to work on like design work as well, like in tandem. And I kind of okay. found this, found this, I like niche for me really, where like, I like being full stack effectively where yeah. I, I handle back end and front end because I think about, Oh, like I'm, I'm doing the front end work. I think about things that some people, you know, wouldn't think about necessarily. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so it, I kind of ended up just throwing myself into that. I love it. And for anyone not familiar, I'm going to give just a real quick introduction to what Mix is, and then I'm going to throw it over to you for the, the five-year-old explanation. So in its simplest form, Laravel Mix is a tool to help you kind of compile and manipulate and mangle and bundle your front-end assets, in, usually in Laravel apps. And it's sitting on top of another tool called Web, Webpack. And Webpack describes itself as a module bundler, which kind of makes it sound a little bit like all you're doing is concatenating things, but there's a lot more going on. So again, Mix is a configuration layer, a convenience layer, a convention layer um, on top of Webpack. So Jordan, you're talking to a five-year-old. <laughs> what are not in the grocery store? How do you talk about Mix? What is Mix and what is Webpack? Mix is basically like you're making sandwiches. You're making food, but for computers. Okay. All right. So you have these layers of stuff that you give it. So like, uh, let's, let's take a banana and mayonnaise sandwich, which is oh the gosh. greatest sandwich on earth. <laughs> And you have, you have bananas, you have mayonnaise, you have bread, you have a knife, you have the manpower or woman power that you've got like working on, uh -huh. you know, making the sandwich, right? So you basically take these ingredients, you put the bread down, okay? Like these are like the files that you give it. So you take the bread, you put the bananas on there, you put the mayonnaise on there, you put more bread on there, right? Mix is basically the knife, the, the person doing the job, right? Mm -hmm. And the files that you give it are the ingredients, Okay. And then the thing that you get out, the sandwich, 
that's your bundle. Okay. Okay. But like you said earlier, like a, a bundle is not just one thing. Mm-hmm. It can be, you know, multiple things. So if you're cutting the sandwich, mm-hmm. that's like pieces of a bundle. And it could be okay. any shape you want. It could be dinosaur shaped. It could be a dinosaur princess. <laughs> oh my gosh my daughter is now now not allowed to listen to this episode because otherwise that'll be everything she wants for every sandwich ever okay dinosaur princess sandwich banana mayonnaise sandwiches you're welcome matt's daughter yep oh that's good man that's basically what it is it's basically like you're you're making sandwich you're you're basically putting things together Mm -hmm. and what does every five-year-old know about food yeah no kidding and being very picky about the shape of their sandwiches Yes. Turns out, I love it. Yeah. Okay. So that was good, man. So mix, mix is is you said mix is the the knife, right? Mix it's is the, like the, the knife. The, the it's the thing that's like mm-hmm. doing the job, and it, it like so like part of that is the knife. You could also be a, a representation of mix, right? Because right. you're doing the job, right? Mm-hmm. So you're giving it stuff, and so like the act of actually like taking that and turning it into something that you want to eat or use. So like the, you give the browser something it needs, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the bundle, but the act of actually doing that is what mix does. Okay. I like that. And, uh, in, in all of our circumstances, the person who's defining what should happen. So, you know, the creator of the mix file, Mm -hmm. the person who chose how to implement theirs is Jordan Pittman, because of course a banana mayonnaise sandwich could not come from anywhere else. So very clearly that analogy is just kind of like, it's all about like how Jordan Pittman is in all of our computers, like running Laravel Mix for us, right? That's, that's yes. basically it. Uh, yeah. Okay, got it. Absolutely. Got it. <laughs> all right, cool. So so Laravel Mix, so let's talk about it from a perspective of somebody who has not used asset compilation before. So let's say I have been writing handwritten CSS and hand-rolled you know, jQuery and JavaScript and I spin up a Laravel app and I'm a PHP programmer. I spin up a Laravel app and I'm like, what is this resources slash whatever.js? And why doesn't, when I change, make changes here, why doesn't it show up? And then somebody told me about webpacks.mix, like what's going on here and what is this thing? So could you explain mix for somebody in that context? Mix is basically a fancy way to say, hey, I want to write modern JavaScript. I want to write modern CSS. And mm-hmm. I don't want to care about like what the browser support is for the most part. I just mm-hmm. want, I want to write stuff and I want it to work. And, you know, if it, goes all the way back to IE 11 shutter, it will. <laughs> right. And so like you have this basically setup that you have to deal with, right? You have a workflow change. You can't just edit mm-hmm. something in the public folder, right? Cause it'll right. get overwritten. Or if you edit something here and you're not running your watcher, it, you know, like what's happening, it's not working. Right. So there's this tooling hurdle that you have to get over. Thankfully their level documentation makes that incredible. Yeah. And so it's like you, you run this watcher in the background, you, you install your node dependencies, you run this watcher, and the goal is you just write your code and it just works. Yeah. And it's like, uh, that's the goal for everything, right? You just absolutely. Write a really simple sim- syntax and API, hit, hit the button, and it just works. Absolutely. Uh, and so, you can use okay. modern features like async mm-hmm. await and generators. And if you like go to CSS, you can have like post CSS plugins for you know, variables or whatever, it, it, all kinds of stuff. And mm-hmm. Webpack and Mix on top of that give you the power to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if we're coming from a jQuery background and we use jQuery because of the fact that it d- does get as an easier syntax, but also one of the things it does is standardize across browsers. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a very understandable appeal there. So if you were to, I don't know if you know off the top of your head, but if you were to open a brand new Laravel app, uh, Laravel 8 app, and take a look at the uh, the Mix configuration file. First of all, what file is that? And second of all, what is Mix doing for us out of the box without us having to configure anything? So the file is webpack.mix.js, okay. and it compiles mm-hmm. JavaScript, and it compiles post-CSS uh, out of the box. Okay. And so you can find those in your resources folder, resources.js and resources.css, and it automatically mm-hmm. applies more modern like JavaScript style, like async await and generators and all that. And then for like your CSS, it applies auto prefixer by default uh, and gives you a convenient place to add additional plugins like if you're using Tailwind. Right. That's great. So so the JavaScript is being run through a tool called Babel. It's, we're still using Babel, right? Yes. Okay. So it's being run through a tool called Babel. 
that allows us to ensure that we're getting that backwards compatibility. I assume yep. it's also being minified. Is there anything else that's going on in the JavaScript or is it just those two? So it gets minified in, in production. Mm -hmm. It generates source maps. Uh, if you have it configured, it does asset resolution for if you're importing files. So like in, in a JavaScript file, you can actually import CSS files with the right settings and it will just like insert it into the, into the document when right. the JavaScript loads. Okay. And Webpack does all of that. Yeah. So we can talk, if we have a moment, I don't know if we will, we can talk about source maps and um, yep. we'll definitely talk about the production flag later. But let's talk about post-CSS. So a lot of people don't know what post-CSS is and we can talk about that in a second. But before we do, what is happening to the CSS? You mentioned auto-prefixer, which is kind of the same idea as Babel uh, for CSS, right? It says, yep. if you're using one of these advanced features, we're going to look at whatever your supported fe uh, browser set is and then you know give you the prefixes. Are there any other things that is running on um, the CSS by default that you know? Uh, by default, I think it's just auto-prefixer. But you can add, with a post-CSS config, post-CSS preset ENV. Mm -hmm. And that will take like your browser list and your package JSON if you have one specified. I'm not quite sure what the default is. Yeah. And say, all right, I want to write modern JavaScript or sorry, modern CSS and basically turn it into something that's generally supported in most browsers. Yeah. All right. So, so if I were to go into public slash JS slash app.js and public slash CSS slash app.css, I'm sorry, not public, resources slash JS slash app.js and resources slash CSS slash app.css, if I configure those things, it's not actually going to be served directly from that resources directory, right? It so what does the process look like for me to get those changes made? Let's just say a brand new Laravel I install, haven't done anything else, just Laravel, new, whatever. And then I go in and I add a couple lines to public slash CSS to set the background to turquoise. What does it take for me to get that to actually show up when I'm serving this site? If you have a new install, you want to run Yarn uh, to install your node dependencies. So you only need to do You this. use Yarn instead of NPM. Absolutely. Really? Yes. Okay, we're going to get there in a second. I'm going to take a note. <laughs> we'll talk about that. You, you, you could either run NPM install, which is what I do, unless he convinced me otherwise, or Yarn. But somehow you're going <laughs> to install your node dependencies. Wow. Okay, we're talking about the Yarn later. All right, keep going. Sorry. So you run Yarn or NPM install. And after you've done that, you, you do it once, and then whenever you need to update stuff, you run yarn or npm dev or watch, and that will compile the file files and put them in the public folder. And that at that point, you can actually load up the Laravel app and see your changes. So if with yarn, do you have to type run, right? Is that what you're saying? You don't, actually. Okay. So with npm, it would be npm run, run dev, dev or npm yep. rev watch. The difference between dev and watch, could you talk about that real quickly for yeah. us? Yeah, so dev basically builds it from start to finish, and then it's done. Watch will actually basically build it, and it'll sit there in the background watching the files for changes. So if you're working on stuff and like you change the background to turquoise and you look at the page, it's, you know, it's turquoise. But if you have the watcher running and you change it to red, it will recompile, and then you reload the page, and the background will be red. Yep. And that works for JavaScript as well. Yeah, watch is nice if you're going to be doing any changes as you go rather than just a one-off thing. Absolutely. So. Okay, so if you do that, it will do all the compilation steps and then I'll output them into public slash JS slash app.js or public slash CSS slash app.css, which is why you don't want to be editing those files in app uh, in public anywhere, anytime. Because I've seen that happen before because the moment yep. somebody runs that, it's going to wipe all your changes. Plus, you're not getting any of the benefits of Mix when you do that. Guilty. <laughs> yep. So, okay. So that's the basics of what it looks like to be a Laravel programmer and getting the basics availability to us for kind of just the baseline of what Laravel Mix does. All right. So the, the, the next step I always go to here is when is the last time you've used this? And it's, it's obviously that it's something you use a lot, but I would just be curious for you. Are there ever applications when you don't use this or, you know, what does it look like for you to use Mix in anything other than the most standard way? So kind of just like what, when I ask you that question, kind of what pops to your mind? So I use Mix every single day. In fact, I probably have okay. a watcher running almost 24-7 <laughs> on my laptop. Um, Got it. I, I actually, I turned the watcher off before we started the podcast just so my fans didn't spin up. <laughs> yep. Got it. <laughs> and I, I've definitely, like, I've used Mix outside of Laravel projects. I, I've used mm -hmm. Mix in a, like, a fully Zen framework app before. And it's fairly simple because all you have to do is basically some additional pieces to configure it. And if you follow, like, the Laravel convention for resources, it generally just works. Nice. Yeah. And that's the best part about it. Yeah. I wrote a blog post about how to use Mix outside of the context of Laravel, but it's a little bit out of date. So I don't <laughs> know if I would actually recommend people go there, but it's pretty easy to set up. The, the only thing you really have to do in that context is just configure um, if you want your paths to be any different than yep. the default Laravel paths. So, 
And if you don't, if you're willing to make this other project just use Laravel defaults paths, then you basically don't have to do anything. So yep. cool. So I kind of want to think about like when you see people using Mix, what are the most common things that they do that are outside of just those two standard things that we just said? So if someone were to go in and actually make a modification to their Mix file, what do you think the most common thing is for them to do? I would say probably changing CSS URL processing. Okay. Uh, that is, especially if you're using SAS, that can bite you. Yeah. And I've had that problem a lot where, yeah. like, it, and, and Mix gives you a really good escape hatch. So, like, it's mix.options and then you can turn off process CSS URLs. It's super handy, but can, it can also slow down your build a lot if you're not careful. Oh, okay. And so that's one of the biggest things that we've had, like, I've had at work that everyone that I work with has had that we, we bite them at some point. Yep. So um, the, and interestingly, that was more common in the past, I think, because SAS was the default mm -hmm. CSS compiler. And in Laravel yep. 8, it's not anymore. So the good news is you don't need that if you're not in SAS, right? Well, it still technically does some stuff, but I think it's less of an issue Okay. Uh, if you're not using SAS. I think it causes less slowdown and less less problems, technically. Okay. So outside of that one fix, because that's obviously like yep, almost that, a bug fix. It, what do you yeah. think is the most common like of my free will? <laughs> you know, like if I want to modify script. Something. Okay, let's type talk about script. it. If you're if you're if you're using TypeScript, Mix has uh, TypeScript support, so you can do like mix.ts instead of mix.js, mm -hmm. and that's that's a big thing. Before the default was post CSS, like that's one of the things that I saw a handful of people do that I would do for any new project. Um, they would change it from SAS to regular post CSS. Mm -hmm. And then even if you're using SAS, you can add post CSS plugins on top of that. And so like Tailwind, it's a post CSS plugin. So yeah. regardless of how you're using it through SAS, through less, whatever, that's like a really big thing. You would configure to add post CSS plugins to add Tailwind. Yeah. That's definitely and, the most common thing that we do at Titan. Yeah, is we just we go in and we take it, we take out SAS, we change it to post CSS because we haven't written SAS in ages, yep. and then we add the post CSS plugin, or the the Tailwind post CSS plugin, which you yep. can get the instructions for that on the Tailwind website. Yep. So there's a lot of other things it can do other than the things that are most commonly used. There's yep. all sorts of like simpler things and uh, compilation and combining you know JavaScript files and stuff like that. There's some much more complicated things like hot module replacement and code splitting. Um, but let's stay at the simpler right now. So we're going to get, you know, all the things we described in terms of JavaScript and CSS and stuff like that. Let's talk a little bit about a few of the other things that are most common for people to look for, one of which is versioning, concatenation, minification. So I guess we're kind of getting concatenation by default with most of them, unless you use like mix.combine or something. But let's just ignore that right now. Let's talk about minification and versioning, because those are often things that happen purely in their production context. Correct. So could you talk to us a little bit about what is minification like, what is versioning like, and what does it look like to do things differently for your dev build versus your prod build when you're working with Mix? Okay. Mix supports this idea of versioning assets. And what it will do is it creates a what's called a Mix manifest, and it maps the files that you import, uh, your, your, your entries, your JavaScript file, your CSS file that you specify in your webpack.mix file to basically that file name with a query string on the end of it. Uh, that query string serves as like a cache busting mechanism. So whenever you make changes, it reads the new file name and says, hey, browser, this has changed. And so it, it basically forces, you know, if you, uh, if you will, like the browser to go request a new file because yeah. something about it has changed. And that is typically only done in production. You can actually do it in dev if you want, but it's a little finicky. But if you use like the mix helper, uh, it doesn't matter. It yeah. it handles all of that for you. And then on additionally, when on top you say of that, the mix you, helper, let's just real quick say that mm -hmm. you mean the the Laravel helper that's available in your Blade templates. Yes. Can you tell us about that helper real quick, or do you want Absolutely. to get back to it so you can? Okay. Oh yeah. So Laravel has a helper function that you can use in Blade templates. That's called mix and you pass it a file name and all it does is it, it reads out your mix manifest and mm -hmm. converts the file from whatever the file name is to whatever the manifest has specified it to be with the query string on the end of it um, yeah it does some other fancy stuff if you're using hot module replacement uh, which we will get to um, but eff effectively it prepends your uh, local host and port on top of that if it needs to so Back to the production build. Yeah, you also get 
uh, minification. And so you have minification of JavaScript and minification of CSS. And this only happens in production because minification yeah. can be a very time consuming and CPU intensive process. And you wouldn't want to run that repeatedly over and over and over again. Yeah. The goal there is like, it should never be any different. If you're using something like Tailwind, it actually detects a production build and will purge your CSS for you uh, if you mm -hmm. have it configured to do so. And so your, your CSS output will be different than your dev output. Yeah. But as long as you've configured purge CSS correctly, or the purge options correctly, that will handle that and you shouldn't see any difference. Yeah. So how do I tell Mix that I want a production build in my app, my uh, assets? Yarn run prod or NPM run prod. And that will kick off a production build and stick them in the same place. File names yeah. are, are the same and it'll update your Mix manifest file. Yeah. And in the past, if you've been around for a while, they, they would actually change the file names of those and yep. put them in a different folder. But now that we're using query strings, thank God we don't have to worry about that anymore. It's a lot yep. simpler. That was a Laravel Elixir thing. Yeah. yeah. If any, anybody didn't follow this Mix manifest idea, basically, if you were to imagine you had a file called app.js and you were making all your changes locally, your local thing, you just hit refresh and it would get you the newest version of app.js. But there's a really common pattern on servers where you want people to not have to constantly re-request your files. So you set a really long cache on them, like seven, seven days or, or a month or forever. But the problem is if somebody comes back and you've made a change, well, they're not going to get it. They're going to get the cached version. So that's why Jordan was talking about cache busting, is that if that app.js file has changed, but you set a super long expiration on its cache, now you can say, hey, this isn't actually the same file. Look, the file name is different. Of course, it's the exact same file, but that query string tells your browser to treat it like it's something different because the browser doesn't know that it's not a different file. Yeah, and sometimes browsers are just super aggressive with caching in general. It's like, I refreshed this five times yeah. and it hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which doesn't make sense, but it happens. Yeah. Okay, so we have gotten into um, production builds. We've talked about minification. We talked a little bit about versioning. So let's talk a little bit further about some of the other, a little bit less common things that still happen often. I think the biggest one, uh, we've already talked about post-CSS configuration plugins. Uh, Tailwind, to me, seems to be the most common plugin. Have you seen people using many other post-CSS plugins? So a handful of people use like the post-CSS import and nesting plugins that gets you like some SAS style stuff, but yeah. in stuff that's like generally more like it comes with less baggage, I guess. Right. And so, yeah. uh, but like the nesting, one of the nesting plugins is actually based on like, I think an in-progress CSS specification. Um, oh, cool. And there's a bunch of post-CSS plugins for like color functions. Um, so like you mm -hmm. can write like, a fancy like color, you know, whatever function in CSS and it gets converted into RGB or HSL. Oh, nice. There's an interesting thing kind of, if y'all are super interested in learning about how this all works with post CSS, I, Adam brought me on the, the full stack radio podcast, basically just to have somebody to talk at. So basically I became like the questioner because he had learned so much about post CSS that I was there mainly to just kind of like listen and ask questions and learn alongside him. He didn't bring me on because of a post-CSS expert, that's for sure. But that episode was really good. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes because I learned a ton and I'm still referencing it now. And one of the things that he mentioned to me then is that post-CSS is, very, like you mentioned, very frequently is tailored around, um, people tailor plugins around trying to give you access to like upcoming CSS specs early. Mm -hmm. We also talked about the fact that with post-CSS, it's much closer to CSS because something like the syntax that you design has to technically be valid CSS. So you can't just go completely crazy. It has to be valid CSS. But people have been able to be creative doing things like Jordan was talking about where it's stuff that like a lot of people use SAS in order to get nesting and in order to get includes and maybe variables. Like th that yep. might be it. And you can now get all those with post-CSS without a lot of the baggage and overhead. And if I've had any NPM issues recently, it's almost always been a node SAS thing. So again, just so you all hear, Titan moved off. Of, I was I was team SAS quite a while ago. We've all moved off SAS ages ago, and I definitely encourage you all to do it as well. So, Anytime I've ever run Mix and been greeted with a wall of text, it's been a node yep. SAS problem because I've upgraded node. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Let's talk a little bit. I think the next thing, so CSS preprocessors. So I'm, you can do all the latest ones. You can do SAS and you can do less and you can do whatever those other ones. Uh, stylus. One? Stylus, yeah. That's a, or it's a pretty, other, yeah. Yep. It, it's interesting because I don't hear about those as much as, like it used to be so vital to have those and it seems to me yep. like it's just like less and less a thing. Like it was a big war between SAS and less and now it's kind of like, eh, do I yeah. have to use either of them? 
I mean, really, it's because post-CSS has started to become more prevalent. And then you have stuff like Tailwind. So I think it's it's a yeah. it's a one-two punch because one of the things that like SAS would give you is nesting because people used to, myself included, would yeah. write CSS that followed the structure of their document. And when they nested a class inside a class, they added more classes and nested the CSS. And yeah. with the advent of like, you know, utility style frameworks, like that is less of an issue. Yep. And when you write CSS, you don't have to write as much of it. Yeah. And on top of that, like you have these features like import uh, and like variables, whatever, like post CSS gives you. And so if you've already using post CSS or like post CSS plugins like Autoprefix or, or Tailwind, you have less need to go for anything else now. Yeah, I think that's a big factor of it for me, for sure, is that like I we had already kind of rolled off of SAS quite a bit. But when it's funny because you can you can hear me also on the Full Stack Radio podcast, episode one, talking about why BEM is the absolute like best object oriented CSS. And BEM, I had given a conference talk about that. Like I was a big fan. And he's introducing this utility. Um, this was before he worked at Titan. He's introducing this utility CSS idea. And I'm like, ah, I'm not sure about it. And they worked at Titan and we started writing some code together like that. I was like, never mind, I'm sure I love this. And so I got to use like pre-Tailwind stuff with him a little bit. And then I got to use the Tailwind Alpha or something like that on my site. So basically, since like before Tailwind even released the first one, I haven't touched any of these preprocessors once because, like you said, there's no reason for me to do it. The, the amount of custom CSS I write is very, 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 very minimal. And and I am using at apply, which I know Adam, you know, criticizes all the time, but I I yeah, I use it, I love it. But yeah, just the the need for these things, especially if you're going tailwind, you definitely don't know that you need these things. But even if not, it's just a lot less necessary. So so you can do you know CSS CSS preprocessors and mix if you need them. But I don't even think we need to spend a lot of time about them. Let's talk about the more complicated aspects of it. So we've got code splitting, we've got browser sync and hot module replacement, and I feel like there's another one. Maybe well, let's just talk about those. Okay. Talk to me a little bit about any of those individually or whichever peaks your brain and I'll grab the other one right after that. So code splitting is actually split into like two different styles. So okay. you can split out your vendor, basically dependencies. So like anything that mm -hmm. you have, that's not your code, you can split it out. And all you have to write is mix.extract. That's it. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And you get three files when you do this, manifest.js, your app.js and a vendor.js. Mm -hmm. You include them in the order of, of manifest, then vendor, then app. Ad, although technically mm -hmm. it doesn't matter as long as the manifest is first. And what it does is it says, okay, hey, I, I've got these dependencies and they're not changing as much as my app code. So mm -hmm. when you make changes, that vendor file is not as likely to change. Right. And so the browser caches it and doesn't have to download it again. Yeah. And then your, your app file will change However, you know, however much you need it to, because you're making changes to the website. Uh, yeah. And then Webpack also has this concept of async chunks, which are admittedly a little bit broken in the current version of Vix, <laughs> but it is fixed in the next version. Mm -hmm. So with Webpack 5, we will have proper async chunk splitting support. And okay, I am... Cool. Very happy about this because I've got an app that's on Mix 3.0 that hasn't been upgraded yet because of this very problem. <laughs> got it. All um, right. So, okay. And these async chunks, what they do is basically say, hey, I, I've got this point where I want to split this code out. I don't want it in my main bundle because let's, let's take Vue, for instance. It's very common in the Laravel community. You can do async loading of Vue components. And let's okay. say you're you're doing an app where you've got like this really large form and, and page and a, and a view component for some reason, but you don't want to load it in your main bundle. You can do an mm -hmm. async chunk split and say, hey, I want to split this off in an async import, and it will load that when it needs it at runtime. So your main mm, app.js file is not bigger because of it. Okay. That's cool. I didn't know about that. I like that. Yeah. I know about extract. I like extract. I didn't know about that. And I mean, yep. like, so, but let's go back to extract real quick only because it's available right now. Mm -hmm. What's the downside? Uh, you got three files. So you got an extra, yep. you know, HTTP yep. negotiation. Anything yep. else? Honestly, not really. It, okay. It's more files to keep track of, but like I do it in every project I ever use. I add that to every mm -hmm. project. I'm actually surprised it's not in the default. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm surprised that I don't use it more because yeah. I learned about it and thought this is really cool. Like I've actually learned about it multiple times. I've learned about it once when it was announced, once when I added to my book, and probably at least another time. And each time I went, this is cool. I should use this more, but I still don't. So it's helpful. Well, and one of the things that you used to have to do, um, you you used to have to list every single dependency you wanted in that list. Mm-hmm. And when the Webpack four upgrade happened, we made it so that it would just do anything you imported from their modules. Everything. And so, like, Got you it. can still provide it a list if you need to, but you don't have to. You can just say mix extract, and that's it. That's nice, and that might be part of it. Is like yeah. it, it was a little bit more manual work. Now you just add literally an extra line. Yep. And it's crazy how many things you get for free from from this. You know, like I've I've built versioning from scratch or from external dependencies before and it was awful. And <laughs> I'm glad I don't do it anymore. And you know, so the same thing here, just the 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 amount of power that you get with a single line mixed out extract is pretty freaking incredible. <laughs> You're still having flashbacks of your 250 line gulp file? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I yes, actually yes. The one that I copied between three or four different projects before finally, thank God we got off gulp. Yep. Yep. And uh, it was great before that. So, yep. Okay. So let's talk about browser sync and HMR. So I know they're not the same thing, but both browser sync and hot module replacement have to do with kind of like the development experience of basically seeing your site change on your browser. Yep. You know, as you're making the changes in your code. So, could you tell me a little bit about both of them and how they're different? Go ahead. Yep. So, basically, they serve to provide you a way to see changes without having to reload the page. And with hot module replacement specifically, uh, you can tie into that. So like Vue does that, it will tie into hot module replacement and say like, hey, reload this component, but keep its state. And hot module replacement specifically is more about JavaScript. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. you can potentially do some CSS stuff with it, but it's a little bit funny. And that's kind of where browser sync comes in is it will actually like when assets change, it will reload assets. Like I even think it will do images uh, if you replace Mm. an image. Um, But Mm. I know like it'll, it'll do like, you know, your JavaScript, it'll do your CSS. And it basically provides a server in the background that it can like retrieve assets from. And then the listener changes like, hey, this has changed. And it will update it on the page. Right. And so they both served that kind of same purpose. Admittedly, yeah. I don't use browser sync that much. Okay. And like I use hot module replacement mainly for view components. Uh, I don't really use it for much anything else. If you're ever developing in something like Vue CLI, that is the default. Okay. All right. So HMR or hot module replacement is doing a little bit more of a complicated thing, but for JavaScript, basically only JavaScript. Yes. It does sound, it's what I hear about a lot more. I remember when it got added, yep. it was very exciting to a lot of people. I bet you there's still a big contingent of people that do use browser sync, but yep. it it does feel like I don't hear about it as often. So that yep. lines up with my, expe- my experiences. Yeah, it's like when you when you make okay. changes to your, your JavaScript, it basically says, hey, like I just wanna take this module, this chunk of stuff that you've added, and I wanna replace it with something else, and then just like rerun it effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So other things we can do in Mix, we can do things like copy files or concatenate files. Those are all so clear to see that you just go look at the documentation and you'll figure it out there. Are there any other, before we move on to my normal kind of like common questions, are there any other aspects of just what people do, can do with Mix that you feel like we haven't done a good job of covering? I typically add a handful of Webpack plugins. The one I mainly add is the Webpack Bundle Analyzer because it lets Mm -hmm. you see what in your dependency list is taking up all that space. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, my yeah, JavaScript, helpful. my JavaScript file is seven megabytes. Oh my gosh. Yep. You know? And so if you and if you, you take that why. and now you can see why. Yeah. And it it does a good That's breakdown cool. to see like, okay, your your vendor file is is really big, but your app.js file is not. And so like, okay. You know, that, that gives yeah. you some fodder there. Uh, but if your app.js file goes really big, like then that's where you probably want to start like doing chunk splitting which is admittedly okay. a little bit broken. So to clarify what's kind of wrong with that currently is when you're producing CSS, it results in zero byte CSS files. That could be a little bit of a problem. Yes, the JavaScript portion works fine. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. today is September 8th, 2020. Do you have a sense for when we're looking at that? Is a couple months out or? That is a very good question and I don't. Okay, no Webpack answer. has a release candidate coming out pretty soon. And we'll have uh, hopefully another build of mix of the next version out, you know, soon thereafter. But my goal, and that's going to be mix five, right? Six. Or the current five. version. The oh, current, this going to be six. Yep. Current is five, right? The current is Sorry. version five. Mm-hmm. My goal, if everything goes according to plan, is to have mm-hmm. Laravel mix six ready to go on Webpack release day. Okay. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yep. I get you. I love it. Cool. Okay. 
So usually what I talk about next is things that are difficult for people, a little bit less about what they can do and a little bit more about what trips them up. So when is the last time some aspect of Mix tripped you up or just kind of common challenges you see people running into? One of the ones you mentioned was processing CSS URLs, but what else is there? So one is actually not strictly related to Mix, but something you can still do with it. If you try to write JavaScript using like currently optional chaining, or null coalescing. We use Babel under the hood, mm -hmm. but those aren't currently enabled by default. Okay. And so uh, sometimes you need to add Babel plugins for that. And so mm -hmm. you can create a Babel RC file to add uh, presets and plugins and other configuration necessities for Babel. And Mix mm -hmm. will actually honor that file when using Babel to compile your JavaScript. So if you're writing some JavaScript and you're using you know, this new null optional chaining operator where you do like dot question mark something or question mark dot something, you might get an error. Uh, mm -hmm. But you may not get it until you load the page, uh, which, Interesting. I've, which I've had happen before. And so if you see that, then that means you probably need to configure your Babel plugins to... Mm -hmm basically turn on optional chaining and null coalescing and, you know, any of those other not quite ready features. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. Yeah. Are there other um, common challenges you think people tend to run into or something you wish everybody knew about Mix that they don't tend to? Webpack is complicated. And so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes if you truth. get, if you get frustrated, it's okay. <laughs> I get yeah. frustrated too. Like it, you know, it, it, this is, this is something that, you know, it is, it is what it is. And if, if you get frustrated with it, like that's normal. <laughs> and yep. our goal with mix is to make sure that, you know, it doesn't happen. But if you have to dive into something a little funny, uh, where you're, yeah. you're editing your webpack configs, mix provides you an opportunity to like add plugins, uh, change resolutions, you know, it, basically any escape hatch that you need, you mm -hmm. can do mix.webpackconfig and go whole hog. Like, I want to change everything willy-nilly, and you can absolutely yeah. do that. And I find that a lot of times I have problems, uh, and other people do too, when they go to customize that kind of thing, and they get some weird errors, and mm -hmm. it's like, oh my gosh. You know, you're what's, out of the safe land of mix now. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're, you're out of, that, you're out of the, the safe zone, and so it's like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And it can be a little daunting, yeah. but that's normal. Let's say I had a perfectly functional mix file and then I come back a couple months later or I clone on a different computer and I'm getting some kind of wall of text, whether or not it mentions a node SAS. You know, often happens when I run npm install, sometimes mm -hmm. maybe when I hit npm run dev. What's my first step to do when that happens? Trash node modules and reinstall. That's it. That's the truth. <laughs> yeah. I hope that was going to be your answer because if not, I was going to be like, what about? Yep. It's crazy that that matters, but it matters. It I find that it matters the most when you have any dependency that compiles binaries yep. on your computer. Mm -hmm. And yep. honestly, it can be something as simple as the thing that Webpack uses to watch files. Because when Node updates, it's not ABI stable. That's a very mm -hmm. complicated thing. But let's just say that means okay. when it changes, like you swap out the binary, you know, Node upgrades, the things that built before aren't going to work. Don't work anymore. Or yeah. if they do... It's a miracle. <laughs> yeah. And so... So, like, so the swapping of the known modules is basically deleting compiled binaries that mm -hmm. no longer are relevant. Okay, that's yeah. helpful. I always deleted and, it, but I wasn't always 100% sure why. So. That's why node SAS didn't work. Yeah, because it was compiled. Yep. yep. Uh, look at this. Learn new things every day. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Okay. So delete no modules. Do you ever have to delete package lock.json or whatever in, or, uh, Yarn's or, version of that or is? Or yarn.lock no? file. I have. Mm -hmm. I try not to. Yeah. But I have. And sometimes like when, when reinstalling node modules doesn't work, that's my next step. And I, I have that in version control. And so like I can yeah. do the changes. Now, uh, I'll be yeah. honest, if you trash your lock file and then you rerun, you're going to see a lot of changes most of the time. Yeah. But generally, I found for projects following you know, Simver, bugs accepting, I don't usually have a problem with it. I okay. may be lucky in that respect. Yeah, yeah. But I have had to do that, and I don't necessarily recommend it, but <laughs> if you're still having problems, try it. If you're still stuck, yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah, I mean, nuking your node modules is easy because it's just like a vendor directory. Yep. Nuking your package lock or, your, or yarn.lock is a little bit tougher, but I, I'm with you. If it's if you got no other options, 
it's better to do that than to, you know, feel like you have to like dig deep to understand every aspect of what's going on. Start yep. start with those two, nuke your node modules and then nuke your uh, lock file. Yep. And then only after that, if you can't get it working, working, that's when you have to start figuring out, all right, what does this giant wall of text actually mean? And looking at stack traces. Yep. And hopefully, hopefully none of you, dear listeners, ever have to have to experience that. Fingers crossed, yeah. Yeah. The other thing I would say is uh, if you're running Yarn or NPM in Homestead and you're using mm-hmm. VirtualBox, you're going to have a fun time. <laughs> so don't. <laughs> All right. So don't run it. I mean, and honestly, I think that I'm trying to remember, but I'm pretty sure the advice is never do it, never run any of your, right? Like you don't even yeah, run Composer I, install I, or PHP I, unit in there, right? So I always run Composer inside Homestead. 100%. Oh, you run it inside it. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't remember um, what the rule was. There's a rule and I couldn't remember which way it was. I, I don't ever run Yarn or NPM or anything like that inside Homestead. Performance okay. is one of them, but uh, especially mm-hmm. if using VirtualBox, like file system issues can cr- crop up that are just Got like, mm-hmm. I, I unzipped this file and it's not there after I unzipped it. What's going on? Right. Got it. So, yeah, yeah, I think I remember that being why I would run Composer outside of Homestead too, yeah. but it's been so long that I can't remember. So you don't have any big performance hit from Composer inside Homestead? Uh, I don't. Not normally. Uh, okay. Sometimes I do run it outside, but I typically run it inside because, especially at work, we have projects on different PHP versions. And so I actually run Composer with a specific PHP version yep. locked down. You got to do that. Yeah, for sure. All right. So is there anything else? Actually, no, I have two things. So there are other. Oh, no. Do you have, do you have more um, challenges and gotchas you wanted to share? Um, I don't. Okay. So I got two things. And it okay. looks like from your face, you have something too. Why don't you go first? Because I wrote mine down. What else do you have on your plate to talk about to, about this topic? So one of the fancy things that you'll see, and it's just like a little nice to have, uh, is whenever you're using Mix, like when you're using the Watcher and you make changes, Mix will actually notify you on Mac OS, on Windows, maybe even on Linux, I'm not quite sure. Okay. That when your when your files have updated. And so like, oh, it's taking a long time. Mix will actually say, hey, like notification, you know, success. Mm-hmm. Or if it failed, it'll, you know, basically send you a notification saying, hey, something's wrong. You know, this it failed. And yeah. that's just one of those things that it's like a super nice to have. You know, you, you don't have to like mm-hmm. think about it. It's just it, you know, you just get a notification where you expect it. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so I got I got two things on my plate. One of them is source maps. You mentioned really yep. quickly about it building source maps. Uh, if somebody's yep. not familiar with source maps, could you tell us a what are they and b how are they generated differently depending on context and mix? Okay, so source maps are mainly used for production, but what they are is they they basically take positions in your files and mm-hmm. map them to in like in your production build files and map them to positions in your development files. Mm-hmm. And so like, let's say you have, if you're using any kind of error handling service that's monitoring for client side JavaScript errors, like we use bug snag at work. I, I think, you know, people use Sentry, mm-hmm. you roll bar, but like typically you can upload source maps or it'll detect them. And when you get errors, instead of having like a one long one line string, right? And you're all minified, yeah, right? Cause it's all minified. Mm-hmm. The source map basically takes that and says, Hey, this is actually where the error is in the dev mm-hmm. version. And so you'll, mm-hmm. your stack traces will actually be nice for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you won't have like good function names or often because, well, no, actually I guess you, you do will. once it maps it in, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. Cause it maps like functions over. And so like, if you're mm-hmm. doing like, there are some weird things that can happen, but for the most part, your mm-hmm. stack traces should be almost like they were in development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for some reason, I thought that they didn't build when you're running NPM run dev or yarn dev, but I actually don't remember for sure. Do they still build in those contexts or only production? I think they only run in production by default. Okay. Technically, there is a source map that is actually built in dev, uh, but it's a Webpack okay. internal thing because you can actually change it. it. It has to do with the way Webpack actually generates your your app.js file in dev. Okay. So not not what your average person is actually dealing with when, when it not, comes to source maps. No. Okay. And a, a note for everybody, um, source maps are also parsed by the Chrome developer tools. So if you are looking in your Chrome developer tools at a console error and you say, where is it? You know, you click the, the error and it shows you where the error was and you see this horrible long string, 
you know, say, well, how am I going to find this error in the middle of, you know, compressed and concatenate or compressed and minified files? Well, the answer is, you know, you enable source maps and then you, uh, I think the flag is on by default in Chrome developer tools, but if not, you turn it on to say source maps. And then in theory, when you click that same thing, it says, oh, there's an error online, blah, blah, blah. You click on it and it's going to take you to a version of the file. that's not actually being served, but it's shown in your Chrome developer tools as if it was actually a file there. And so like, that's really cool when you end up in like, for example, minified CSS and you click on it, it actually shows you which of your SAS files it comes from or which of your source, you know, yeah. what's it called? Uh, Post CSS files it comes from or something like that. Yep. All right. One last question before we start wrapping it up. Tell me about Yarn. Ah, oh, okay. So I'm probably going to get some hate for this, but I like Yarn just because of the speed, honestly. Okay. Um, there are a few things I still use NPM for, gasp, I know, <laughs> which is like global dependencies. Uh -huh. I can't get those to work with Yarn. I don't know why. Okay. They used to work, and then they stopped working. I don't understand. And so I still install those with with Node, uh, with NPM. But for the most part, mm -hmm. like I use Yarn for everything because of speed. And so Yarn install or Yarn run things or both? Both. It's 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 hmm. just it's convenient to use one tool, and so I I just use Yarn for pretty much everything, and. Yeah, that's that's basically what it is. It's like it's it's mainly a performance thing for me because I started this hmm. when npm like was doing like the nested folders and like before it was you yep. know it, and like I don't exactly remember when yarn came out around that time frame because it may have been a little after npm three, which is when they kind of flattened the structure if I remember correctly. But mm -hmm. um, performance was always a very big thing for me. And if I can run Yarn and have a node modules folder in 60 seconds versus five minutes, that's kind of important for my workflow. It's interesting because we switched to Yarn because it had a lock file and because it did better dependency management. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I ever remember there being a, um, a speed issue. And so once NPM brought those back, we switched back over to NPM just to keep life simpler. Interesting. So if everyone were to switch to Yarn on your recommendation right now, are there any downsides that you can think of relative to using NPM? I honestly can't think of any. I know there's this whole thing about Yarn Berry, which is like Yarn version two, which I haven't tried yet. It's supposed to be really interesting. It's got like something called plug and play support, which is like one file. It's like not even you like you don't even get a node modules folder. It's hmm. wild. I don't quite understand how it works because I haven't played with it. Right. But I, I would say for me, like I don't really see any any downsides. You know, I, I generally find it to be just a good option. Okay. I might have to take a look at it and run a, run a speed test. I'm just going to pick whatever my most recent project is, and I'll try and run a speed test on both of them and see uh, see how they pan out. If I remember to do it, I'll do that and tweet it out. So Yes. Very cool. Um, all right. So that was the last of those questions. So before we start wrapping up, is there anything else that you feel like we should have talked about that we didn't get a chance to? Mix plugins, actually. Um, oh, yeah. so this this uh -huh. isn't something I use very often because I don't, I don't need to as much anymore. Like there was a Purge CSS plugin, there was a Tailwind plugin, but I've actually done some interesting things. You can do like, I think it's mix.extend. Uh, I can't quite remember yeah. the exact syntax. Uh, it's the same mechanism that the internal mix plugins use to like register themselves. Um, and I'll give you an example of something I did on a project last year, I think, where we have this like monstrosity site, which is code based. Like it's like 10 different websites in one. Mm -hmm. And because they're all like basically the same vein, so it kind of makes sense for that project, but they all mm -hmm. have vastly different styles and JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And so I extended Mix using this little API, it's just a, probably a small function. I'll throw a, a gist on uh, GitHub. Sweet. Where I read an environment variable to say, like, what site am I currently building assets for? Because if, okay. if we didn't do that and it compiled all of them every time, all it took <laughs> minutes. Yeah, like yeah. 10 minutes or something to compile everything because there's so many. And so yeah. I basically just wrote a little mix plugin that says when I write mix.site and I give it a site name and a function, it basically runs mm -hmm. that to basically register what files mix actually needs to process. So inside that I have like mix.js and mix.css or post.css or SAS or whatever. Cause some of those are using SAS and some of them are using post.css. Oh, like we're even using different tooling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, like that's, that's the kind cool. of thing that you can do to like clean up your files or, or kind of tweak your build. It's like, and 
Mix just has that ability. And so if you want to try that to clean up your file, if you have like a really gnarly Mix file, it's not really a common situation, but if you do, why not? Give it a shot. That's awesome. I love that. And a note, like it doesn't have to be a plugin that you're going to release. You know, like nope. you just described a plugin that they just use internally. And that's it's, the helpful, helpful thinking in all this kind of stuff, right? Even with PHP packages, like yep. build packages for yourself, even if you don't know if they're ever going to go public, right? Yeah. Well, and this, this plugin is literally inlined in the mix file at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just calls yeah, it's, it's like at the an in, inline plugin definition. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. I love it. All right. So if somebody wanted to learn more about mix, uh, where would they go? The Laravel documentation is big. It's it, it's pretty extensive, actually, and it yeah. covers basically the compilation, configuration, all the customization options, all the different tools. Like, we, you know, you can do CoffeeScript, you know, you mm-hmm. can do TypeScript, JavaScript, you can, heck, Webpack's so powerful, you can import Rust files if you really wanted to. Oh you would have goodness. to You would have to configure that one manually, but, um, mm-hmm. but like, Reasonably it, so. it, it talks about you know, the escape patches for Webpack, you know, config. And so like mm-hmm. the biggest thing for me, like hey, when I get stuck, I look at the Laravel documentation. I love it. I love it. This is from someone who like, I, I don't know exactly how much to claim for you, but you have had a very significant hand in writing much of the Webpack related. And I want to say, you know, you you know the internals pretty darn well. Let's say that. <laughs> so the fact that you, were, you run to the documentation is pretty awesome. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so our last moment, uh, if you've learned, listened to the podcast all season, you know there's a personal fun moment for everybody. Oh, dear. You can probably guess yours. Uh, I had written it before we started recording. I have no idea. What on freaking earth is going on with mayonnaise and banana sandwiches? That's what I have to ask. Yes. I saw it in your Twitter profile. Oh, my like, God. I don't know how long ago, and I've been waiting for this moment oh to ask God, you. Oh, my God, yes. What on earth? I love this What so is much. going on with this thing? Have you never had one? No, I've never even heard of one okay. until I saw it on your Twitter. Okay, so like people are commonly eat peanut butter and banana sandwiches, right? Yeah, of course. Okay, try it. It will change your life. So okay, I, so let's just talk for a second. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Tell the story first. <laughs> I, I grew up eating this. Like I thought this was you a did. normal. Th- yes. This is not something you made up. No, I grew up eating this. I thought this was a normal you're, thing. And you're from you're from Georgia, right? You're not from yes. like a, like a, okay, you're from Georgia. Okay. I'm from Georgia. I live in Georgia right now. Okay. I'm going to have to ask people around me if any of them have heard of it, but so far I've never heard of it. Interesting. So can you tell me a little bit about, actually, when was you? When did you first figure out that other people didn't eat mayonnaise and banana sandwiches? Probably bickering on Twitter. <laughs> what? So did other people in your town eat it? Or yes. do you not know because you, you know? Well, I mean- Really? It, so like I, I like several of like my like family and friend group like ate, ate them. Okay. And I remember having arguments with people at work about mayonnaise and banana sandwiches. I believe it. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, this is the greatest sandwich known to man. I don't understand how you've not tried this before. So I'm, I'm Googling it right now because I was waiting until I talked to you to see it. But there's quite a few website results. Oh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. teaches you how to make his mayo banana sandwich. Yes. I love this. What is going on? So um, oh. I have to poke a little bit of fun at Eric Barnes right now. Because he and I oh, go back and forth Love that guy. on Twitter uh, about Die Hard, about whether or not it's a Christmas oh, yeah. movie. And it's Christmas it is a Christmas movie because the whole point of it being there, it, the whole point of the movie is he's going to see his family for Christmas. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But I, I mean, we, we always have this back and forth banter about this. It's amazing. I love it. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> I love this. I love, I love this fun. But I remember tweeting something about mayonnaise and banana sandwiches, and he said something. I was like, "Oh my god, is this the thing we're going to agree on?" Because he eats them too. Because <laughs> he's he's southern too. Yeah. Apparently, <laughs> according to Google, it's like a super super southern thing. Yeah. So. And I was like, I think this might actually th- this might make me forgive you for your diehard tweets. <laughs> okay. And then wow. someone chimed I mean, in and said, "Y'all are disgusting." Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking at like pieces of just like white bread or yeah. like, you know, so, honey meat or something. And then you just yeah, tell, tell me about it because they're not looking at these pictures. Tell so me like, how, I, exactly step by step. So I take two pieces of white bread. Typically, I make two sandwiches. So four. I get some. Does it bananas. have to be white or would you be okay with like a honey wheat or it something? Doesn't ha- okay. It doesn't have to be white. It. I think it's better with white bread, uh, but that's okay. just like a personal preference. Okay. Dukes or Hellman's mayonnaise. I think probably Hellman's is probably my preferred um, but either one would be good oh, i thought all southerners thought dukes was better see i just like mayonnaise so 
<laughs> like, I'm not that picky. Just give me some freaking mayonnaise. Um, not, okay. not like vegetable mayonnaise or, or Dijonese or Regionese or whatever. Like that no, yeah, yeah. tastes not quite the same. So Dukes or Hellman's like... And then bananas, sometimes I'll slice the banana. Sometimes I'll cut it into two pieces and like make basically mm-hmm. long uh-huh. on two pieces of bread. Like sometimes I'll banana split type things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and sometimes I'll slice it. Uh, it just depends. And I man- I put mayonnaise on both slices of bread because of course. <laughs> and yep. I eat it. It's delicious. It's the most amazing sandwich known to man. So this is I'm I'm gonna provide a counterpoint that I'm not actually co-signing on because I've never tasted it. Okay. But I when I googled peanut butter or uh, mayonnaise and banana sandwich, I was trying to look for one with a good picture, and the one from GQ I guess had a good picture. So I go to their their article, and the first thing they have is a tweet where they said, "Would you eat a banana and mayo sandwich?" And fifty six point six percent of people said, "Not in my life." Twenty five point five percent said no, and then eight point eight percent said the yes, delicious, and nine percent said I'm eating one right now. Okay, so that's out of thirty four thousand votes. So this author, and again, this article is we tried five gross sandwich combinations people actually eat. So this author <laughs> tried all of them, and the the options are banana and mayonnaise, peanut butter and pickle, peanut butter and cheddar, peanut butter and mayonnaise, and pineapple and mayonnaise. So I'm pretty sure he hated all of them. <laughs> he hated all of them. So we're going to give like a little bit of a, of a credit that maybe Freddie was not the right person to be writing this article because it doesn't look like he has the most expansive palate. But I will, just for fun, I'm going to read you his description of the banana and mayonnaise Ooh, sandwich. I'm ready and then this. I'm going to go have one later and I'm going to tweet it. I actually might even make like a video of myself doing it on YouTube. Oh my God, please like do. That. Please do. Um, Can you live stream this? But I'll try and... What's that? <laughs> Can you live stream it? But, but I want to I have the audio so I can put it in this, this podcast oh, episode. So if okay. I remember, okay, I will try it. And then the out, after the outro music will be me trying a banana and mayonnaise sandwich. So he says, to uh, origin, to my surprise, it wasn't invented by Dale Earnhardt Jr. Turns out the banana and mayonnaise sandwich is considered a southern delicacy. Blah, blah, blah. Preparation. One whole sliced banana sandwich between two slices of white wheat bread and healthy coating of mayo. How does it taste? Absolutely terrible. Texture-wise, it's a slimy, gooey mess, and there are no complimentary flavors. You bite into it, and all you get is a strong hint of salty mayo, followed by the faint echo of banana practically an eternity later. You'd think the sweet banana would be some relief from the bitter mayo, but it says it's a reminder that other, better foods exist, and you could be eating those instead of this garbage. Would I eat it again? Not if you paid me. I would have happily licked a subway seat if it meant getting the taste out of my mouth. So, wow. I have paid someone this, to eat a mayonnaise you, and banana sandwich. I literally right, paid well, someone 20 bucks to seat. do it. That's awesome. I, so I, his his description here sounds like what I imagine it tasting like. It's that like the bitter and the sweet. But I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna try it. And oh it's my god! Be recorded. This makes me so happy. So, yeah. If I didn't have things to do and we didn't both have jobs, I would go do it right now live. Hold on. I literally. Do you have a job you have to get to? I'm done for the day. Okay, I'm gonna go make one real quick. Oh my god! And, yes. Um, I, I was right, gonna say I literally could like go get some bananas from like. The cafe near me. <laughs> Although I don't know if they no, have I'm any gonna, mayonnaise. But yes. I, I have bananas and I have Duke's mayonnaise. Oh my God, yes. All right. So I am back from having gone to the kitchen to create a banana and mayonnaise sandwich. Uh, I've got now a camera pointing at me from the side uh, for the YouTube friends. Hey, YouTube friends. This is the Laravel podcast right here. Or the, yeah. And then uh, with Jordan Pittman. And then this is a banana and mayonnaise sandwich and podcast folks you're not going to be able to see the things i'm describing so you should go check out the youtube after you listen to this podcast um so i'm going to try it live because jordan tells me that this is the best sandwich of all time and i'm a you know i don't know if i'm a glutton for punishment or if i'm an adventurous human being but whatever it is it's gonna happen so i'm so happy i'm trying to get good good audio on the mic and also look at you youtubers while i'm at it so let's see if i can do it all right so you ready for this uh oh oh, yes this is um nature's own honey wheat bread with uh, a medium amount of mayonnaise on both both slices of bread, so um, and then about three quarters of a pretty decent sized banana. So let's do this. Oh, by the way, YouTubers, you didn't get to hear this in the podcast. I just read a GQ article about how this is like the worst. The guy, the guy who tasted it, rated it as a negative one hundred out of one hundred flavor wise. So <sighs> here we go. You know, some people really hate chewing noises. <laughs> they don't want to listen to this podcast. I might need a warning up front. Can you move the uh, sandwich in view a little bit? Yeah, totally. I'm <laughs> not sure how I feel about this yet. Oh my gosh. 
it is okay. So it's definitely weirdly salty. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because peanut butter, you mentioned this, peanut butter is salty. Yep. Right. But this is weirdly salty in a different way. There's moments in eating it where I go, this is great. And there's moments in eating it where I go, this is not great. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out what, like, if it had more banana or less banana, more mayo or less mayo, would one of those feelings be more likely to happen? It's hard to tell. I would it try. It certainly is not a negative 100 out of 100. That's that's stupid. I would try like, adding more mayonnaise. More mayonnaise next yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. Like on, try, I got to take try. one more bite. It's a very confusing flavor profile. It is confusing. But next time. You know, I love it. I'll actually add more mayonnaise on the second half and then come back and I'm not make everybody wait on that. But yes. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So when it's tasting good and familiar, I'm basically tasting a banana sandwich with a little bit of salt on it. And I think what tastes a little weird to me is when I start noticing the mayonnaise flavor. So I do think that like, because I mean, I'll show you YouTubers like that's a pretty, it's a pretty good amount of mayo, but I'm pretty sure that you wanted more mayo than that. So, okay. Next time. I, I don't know if I could concur that is the greatest sandwich of all time. It is not quite as weird as I expected it to be. Um, so I'm going to, you know, okay. Uh, uh, there was one, I'm trying to remember, what was the thing I tried last time? I tried something else. Um, it was the, not Marmite, but what's the, Vegemite? I tried Vegemite on a stream once. And that stuff's amazing. Really? I, have you ever had Vegemite before? I've never oh had it. Oh my God, it's amazing. So in... There is a part of it that like the way I have been eating Vegemite, it's basically like toast and then like an incredible amount of butter and then a little bit of Vegemite. So I'm basically eating like salted butter toast. So maybe like if I had less butter on it, I wouldn't like it quite as much. But with it, with it the way I ate it, it was it was heavenly. So I think I think my verdict. So I'm gonna stop this for the YouTubers. I think my verdict on this is verdict is first of all, I'm gonna go have to try it with more. Um, second of all, it is not a negative 100 out of 100, Mister. Um, Mr. Freddie Campion from GQ.com. Um, but I'm not ready to say it's the best sandwich I've ever tasted in my life. So, Jordan, if we're in the same place physically, I'm going to have you make one exactly the way you make it. Okay. And I'm going to try that. Okay. Okay. But for now, after this video, I will, um, and after this podcast, I'll go try it with more mayonnaise. And I will, if if it dis I discover that more mayonnaise made it the best sandwich in the world, I will update the video description and I will update the podcast notes. Cool? Yes. All right. See you, YouTubers. Okay, podcasters, what's up, people? So if you want to see the joy of that sandwich or me on a very hot day because I can't run the fan, um, you know, definitely, you know, check out that YouTube. I'll put it in the show notes. Jordan, thank you for introducing me to that that aspect of your family tradition and your, you know, your southern culture. Because I, I live in the south, but I'm not from the south. I'm from Michigan. So uh, I feel like I, you know, I feel like I, you know, moved to a new city and tried a new thing that, you know, and it was a new experience. And it was not a negative 100 out of 100. I would, you know, if, if I would say like the best sandwich in the world is 100, and, you know, I would say this is like a like a 55 to 60, maybe, you know, that's not bad. and I'll tr I'll try it your way. Okay. I, I expected it to be like a 15. So yeah. <laughs> I, I'm now curious more people. I want you all to go try this thing. Yes. And and try it out. And I'm actually trying to look at the pictures. I'm going to link a picture in the show notes of how much I had on mine. But I'm looking at these pictures of people like the Dale Earnhardt Jr. And they all put maybe a little bit more mayo than I did, but not a ton more. So I'm wondering if you are like, you're the Mayo King. Now. Oh, my God. I love mayonnaise. Um, and okay. I feel absolutely honored to introduce this to you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. This is a good moment. Yes. All right. So as always, we can, we're running so late because we're having such a freaking good time. But we should probably start wrapping it up. So if people want to follow you and your joyful opinions about Die Hard and uh, Banana Mayo Sandwich and also Laravel Mix and all these things, where do they follow you? Is there something you want to plug? All that kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm Jordan Pittman on Twitter, uh, two T's. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, I'm like the cryptic ace on GitHub, Instagram. Uh, I'm that in a ton of other places. Um, so you can okay. find me there as well. And those will all be in the show notes as always. So mm -hmm. the cryptic ace. Yes. All right. I'm a, I'm a card um, guy. I I was figuring it was something card related. So yeah. I, I I gotta ask one thing. What kind of, what is what does being a card guy mean? What kind of cards? Are you play poker? Do you do card tricks or what? Uh card tricks. Um I, I okay. literally have a dresser like with a ton of decks of cards in it right now behind me. Really? Yeah. Is it anything that would show up on like a YouTube or something like that? Um potentially. Uh uh okay. it's bunch of different brands illusionist and theory 11 are like the two main brands that i have um mm -hmm. I, i'll even i'll pull out 
something to show you. And I'll take a picture of this. I might be getting you all some uh, some YouTube magic here. Uh, I literally have like a... Mm, that's fancy. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm looking at, but it looks fancy. So these are two decks of cards. These are actually sealed. Um, okay. In a, in a little I case. assume that those are really fancy. If I knew about magic, I would know that those are really fancy. I mean, they look amazing. Uh, they're a little... Like, they're not super pricey, but like I think that thing may have been a little bit but I, I like to get some nicer decks of cards just because they're like intricate and i'm really really mm -hmm. enjoy that so like my my two big like my two biggest things are like cards and uh pool actually i love playing pool okay so huh yeah uh i feel like i could just keep going on with more questions <laughs> But I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna stop for the sake of this not being the two hour long podcast episode. But this was, Jordan. This was a ton of fun. As always, I get to ask the as, uh, take these wonderful people who are doing great things for the community. Thank you for everything you've done to make Webpack just work for the rest of us. Thank you for helping people in the issues. Thank you for introducing to me this very interesting uh, and somewhat enjoyable. We'll see where I end up long term thinking about it. But definitely an interesting experience. I'm glad I had it. Um, and yeah, just thanks for being you, man. Really appreciate you. Man, I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. I am so glad to be here. I love <laughs> thanks it. Thanks for All having right, me. All right, see you all next time. <laughs>